You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a few things. First, we're going to talk about the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval for sunitinib as the adjuvant treatment for patients with resected renal cell carcinoma who are at high risk of relapse. It's based on some recent back and forth in gem oncology in the letters to the editor section. Next, we'll have an interview with Dr. John Mandrola. You may know him from his Medscape column or from social media websites like Twitter. John is a fantastic writer and a great cardiologist, and he's going to be here to lend his thoughts about the directions of evidence-based medicine and medicine broadly. Stay tuned. All right, now we're going to talk about the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval of sunitinib in the adjuvant treatment of RCC. Now, this happened a while back. It happened on November 16, 2017, and I'm talking about it just today. Well, it's been in the news a lot lately, um, in part because of some back and forth in jam oncology uh, between Bishal, Dr. Goldstein, and some of the members of the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee, in part because the quality of life outcomes have been published in the Annals of Oncology in a paper entitled Adjuvant Sunitinib in Patients with High-Risk RCC, an analysis of the S-TRAC trial. Um, so there have been a couple of things that have brought this back into the limelight, and now I'm going to shine the spotlight on it. So before I launch into this, I think you do need to know some bit of background. We're talking about the adjuvant treatment of cancer here. And I'm going to confine my comments to the adjuvant treatment of solid tumors, which is a particular setting in cancer medicine that we have a lot of familiarity with. Now, when you have a cancer that is localized to the breast or lung or colon or kidney, for instance, and you can fully surgically remove it, that is often done as part of a curative strategy. And in fact, for some patients, that likely is a cure, that they will not have a recurrence of that cancer in the rest of their natural life. They will have no more problems with that cancer. Um, however, there are a number of risk factors that predispose a patient to have a recurrence of that cancer. Some of these are biological risk factors. Some of these are histopathologic risk factors, like lymph node involvement, for instance. And we can put patients in each of these cancers along a spectrum of risk. Um, a lot of that risk is captured in traditional staging methods, but not everything about that risk is captured in the traditional stage. Now, we know for certain patients who are at high risk of relapse that the administration of anti-cancer drugs can lower the risk of relapse. This is true in breast cancer or colon cancer or lung cancer. In many cases, we also know that by lowering the risk of relapse, we actually improve overall mortality, and that's true in colon cancer and lung cancer. Now, what is the challenge is that simply because a drug delays recurrence does not necessarily mean it will improve overall survival. That's one of the challenges. The second challenge is this is biologically a different task we're asking of a cancer drug. So contrast the adjuvant setting with the metastatic setting. In the metastatic setting, there's often unresectable tumor burden, and drugs can improve survival or quality of life merely by markedly reducing the burden of cancer. Um, if you re reduce it many-fold, um, you can make a patient feel much better and often live longer. 
in the adjuvant setting, in order to achieve a benefit, you often not only have to simply reduce cancer, you have to eliminate micrometastatic disease. And that, that might be the challenge of adjuvant therapies. Uh, I think empirically it is the case that it is a lot harder to make a successful adjuvant drug than it is to make a successful metastatic drug. And in fact, um, every single drug that works in the adjuvant setting also works in the metastatic setting, with the one exception of neuratinib was initially approved in the adjuvant setting and not the metastatic setting, but it's a big question if that drug actually does anything of value or not. That's, that's for another podcast. Um, in contrast, simply because you work in the metastatic setting to improve outcomes for patients does not necessarily mean you'll work in the adjuvant setting. Classic examples include irinotecan for colon cancer, which works very well in the metastatic setting, but not at all in the adjuvant setting. Cetuximab uh, in the adjuvant setting, bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting in several cancers, um, even serafinib in hepatocellular carcinoma, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Merely because you've worked in the metastatic setting does not ensure you will work in the adjuvant setting. Um, but the reverse is, is often the case, that drugs that do work in the adjuvant setting usually do have some role or purpose in the metastatic setting. Okay, so the goal of adjuvant therapy is to eliminate microscopic disease, which should decrease recurrence and which should increase overall survival. That's the key question. Um, does sunitinib in the adjuvant treatment of RCC do that? One, does it improve survival? Nope, the curves are superimposable. And here I'm talking about the S-TRAC trial, which is the one trial that led to regulatory approval. It was the industry-sponsored trial. The ASSURE trial, a cooperative group trial, actually had null results for even the surrogate endpoint, let alone survival. So does this drug improve overall survival? The answer is no. The curves are superimposable. Two, if you don't improve survival, perhaps you improve health-related quality of life. Well, that's the big upset that we've learned very recently, um, that patients on sunitinib did report increased symptoms and reduced health-related quality of life. Uh, that's a quote from the abstract of the Annals of Oncology paper. More symptoms, lower quality of life. That is not that good. You have a drug that doesn't improve survival and it doesn't improve quality of life. Now there's a bit of nuance here about quality of life, but I'm going to have to ignore it for the same reason I ignored it in a prior episode because my postdoc is working on something and I will not scoop her. Okay, um, there's a very interesting line in this quality of life paper. Many, 40% of AEs leading to permanent discontinuation were grade 1 and 2, and most, 87%, resolved or were resolving by 28 days after the last treatment. So I think the, they're putting this in there to kind of sugarcoat the fact that, look, the AEs that led you to stop taking Sutent, they were grade 1 and 2. They weren't grade 3 and 4. But what, is their, what are they actually telling you? I think they're telling you something that has been increasingly recognized, uh, been recognized at least since a paper by FOHO and JNCI in 2009 and increasingly by others, which is that when you talk about medicines that are taken daily, often for the rest of your life, that grade one and two toxicities can often be terrible, insurmountable, so bad that you want to discontinue the therapy. This is something that Jeremy Setnar and I talked about in episode two of this podcast, and I, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I think 
what they're telling you is actually something quite concerning, that in the adjuvant setting of RCC, these are patients who feel well, who've had a cancer fully resected, they have no macroscopic evidence of having cancer in their body, and they are not going to take this medicine, they're going to discontinue it, even if the events are grade one and two, which many people would brush off, but they should not be brushed off because those are events that clearly are leading people to decide this drug is not worth it. Okay, so it doesn't improve survival, doesn't improve quality of life. I have to take a bit aside and talk again about my topic that I don't want to have to talk about, which is medical writers. Um, in the new paper that has this line at the end, medical writing support was provided by so-and-so of so-and-so, funded by the sponsor. Oh boy, I don't, I don't like, I don't like this. I don't like medical writers. You, you all know that. I talk about it all the time. Um, I just wanted to highlight some sentences that, you know, you gotta wonder, would an investigator write it this way? You know, who's writing it this way? Okay, so these are sentences from the paper. In S-Track, AEs were predictable, manageable, and reversible via dose interruptions, dose reductions, and or standard supportive therapy. Patients on sunitinib did report increased symptoms and reduced quality, health-related quality of life, but these changes were generally not clinically meaningful, apart from appetite loss and diarrhea, and were expected in the context of known sunitinib effects. Of course, it's just expected. It's not clinically meaningful. How about this? Managing adverse effects and monitoring how patients are feeling and functioning while on treatment are especially important in the adjuvant setting to optimize accumulative dosing for efficacy while maintaining tolerability for patients. Okay, I guess that's true, but it's really kind of a motivational speech. It's not really a scientific manuscript. Um, most of the serious AEs were known risks of sunitinib treatment, hypertension, thrombocytopenia, and pulmonary embolism. They're known. Nothing unknown, nothing out of the ordinary here. Um, how about this quote? The difference in outcome with sunitinib in S-TRAC versus Assure is likely due to differences in patient population and study design, including AE management, which in S-TRAC helped to keep patients on treatment for longer, giving them a greater mean cumulative dose of sunitinib compared with Assure. Well, that's not the only difference between those two trials, and this is a bit of speculation, I would have to say. Oh, and how about this gem? The analysis of the EORTC quality of life C30 scale in the S-TREC indicated that patients in both groups maintained a relatively high level of functioning in global health status with little clinically meaningful deterioration in their global health status or quality of life and functional scales. While patients who received sunitinib experienced symptoms consistent with the drug's known safety profile, these were reported at low levels and remained in the range between, quote, not at all to a little. And in conclusion... The safety profile of sunitinib was generally acceptable in the adjuvant RCC treatment setting, acceptable, and according to who, without any new safety signals in this study. AEs reported in the sunitinib arm were consistent with the established safety profile of sunitinib. There were no treatment-related deaths. AEs were predictable, manageable, and reversible via dose interruption, dose reduction, dose delay, and or standard supportive medical therapy. A proactive and effective therapy management strategy enabled many patients to stay on therapy. Okay, you get the picture. Uh, this is nothing out of the ordinary. This is something we can all tolerate. And you know what? Honestly, if your patients can't take the medicine, it probably speaks more to the fact that you're a bad doctor who, don't know, who doesn't know how to provide appropriate supportive care. So if you're not willing to give this drug, it really speaks more about you than about the limitations of the medication. You might as well say all that because I think it's tone, it's tenor, you know, it's not written in that kind of impartial way I would like to see it written. Okay. So you may be wondering, well, what does sunitinib do? Well, sunitinib improves disease-free survival compared with a placebo in one trial, but not in the other trial. 
then you might be wondering, well, is DFS validated? Is it predictive of OS as a trial-level surrogate, which I've talked about on this podcast? And the answer is, to my knowledge, and based on an unpublished study that we're going to be putting out pretty soon, I have no evidence that satisfies me that DFS has been validated in this setting as a trial-level surrogate. Okay, so that doesn't seem so good. Overall survival, a wash, health-related quality of life, worse. Um, those are the two things that matter to patients. The surrogate is something that's a stand-in for that, okay? So now let me talk a little bit about a paper that appeared this spring that's now making another splash. This is Bishal and Dan Goldstein, two of my favorite oncology researchers writing in JAM Oncology, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval of adjuvant sunitinib for renal cell cancer, a case of regulatory capture, and they put a question mark because they, they want to soften the blow there. Um, I'm just going to read a few gems from this paper. One may argue that eight years of follow-up are insufficient for OS in the adjuvant setting. So here they're taking this position that, you know, I told you the OS was no different. The curves are superimposable for eight years. They're saying, what if somebody actually were to argue that, look, they're going to split later? Okay, here's what they say. Perhaps one could argue the collinear curves would begin to separate after eight years. However, if we look at other trials that led to adjuvant approvals for other solid tumors, we see that this is not the case. We review the landmark adjuvant trials that form the basis for our current clinical practice, and we note that the overall survival curves begin to separate after one to two years of follow-up. So what the authors here are hinting is that perhaps all you've done is delayed a recurrence, but then when you have the recurrence, perhaps uh, it is more difficult to treat, and in the end, you're making no headway in terms of overall survival, which is the endpoint that actually matters to patients. You're not really eradicating microscopic disease. You're not really curing people. They have this gem. Furthermore, a meta-analysis of the Assure and S-Track trials was also published and demonstrated that adjuvant sunitinib did not improve either DFS or OS, but did significantly increase the risk of severe adverse events. So this happens when you put both those two studies together, because we have two studies on this topic. And here the authors make a brilliant point. In this context, it is important to realize that two other tyrosine kinase inhibitors of angiogenesis, serafinib in, in the Assure trial and pazopinib in the PROTECT trial, also fail to improve outcomes in similar settings. You know, I think in oncology, we have to start asking ourselves if many, many similar drugs work. That is reassuring uh, in the sense that this is a, a, a pathway that is important in that cancer, for instance, in metastatic RCC, serafinib, pazopinib, exitinib, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when only one of very comparable or similar drugs works, for instance, sort of the situation in HCC where there's just a handful out of many, many, many that have been tried, um, or in this situation, adjuvant RCC, one might start to wonder if there is perhaps something unique about this trial and it's not something about the drug um, that is really leading to this difference in outcome. So I think that's what they're kind of alluding to here. And I think it's kind of a clever point that, you know, I think we have to think more carefully about what Jonathan Kimmelman calls the clinical trials agenda and the portfolio of clinical trials. And, and we're doing some work in that space. Okay. Um, in the letter to the editor that went back and forth uh, between um, some of the members of the ODAC and these authors, um, there's a couple of issues. These issues were discussed, but one of the other issues is who knew what, when, what went into the ODAC decision, um, you know, and these authors maybe feel as if they did not know or perhaps did not comment in an appropriate way about overall survival being indistinguishable. They feel that they did talk about it sufficiently. I don't want to get bogged down into that debate because I think it's not really that important. Um, I think, you know, you will also note that some 
of the most steadfast defenders of the industry also fault ODAC committee members for you know, feeling as if they are not always adequately prepared for the discussion. Maybe they didn't all read all the materials all the time. But I think that's not really the point. You, The point are the content here. The point is this is a drug. doesn't improve OS. There's no evidence improves OS. It doesn't even improve DFS if you pull all the studies that have examined it. It worsens quality of life. What are we doing in oncology? What are we doing? How low is the bar? Um, surrogate endpoints are used to predict subsequent OS and quality of life. When you've directly measured what you care about and it's not improved or worsened, what are you doing accepting the surrogate? Of what value is the surrogate? I think there's some deep questions here, and I don't have all the answers, um, but I do think this is a problematic approval. Okay, and I just want to close with one last point about this, that even though in the United States we have granted regulatory approval for sunitinib and adjuvant RCC, um, we have not done that in Europe. Uh, in Europe, as of August 30th, 2018, we see this press release from ESMO. Withdrawal of application for a change to the EU marketing authorization of Sunitnib. Uh, on the 26th of June, 2018, Pfizer officially notified EMA that it wishes to withdraw its application to extend the use of Sunitnib in adjuvant RCC. What were the reasons given by the committee for withdrawing the application? In its letter notifying the agency of the withdrawal of the application, the company stated that it was withdrawing because the data provided do not allow the CHMP to conclude that the benefit outweighs the risks. The company informed the CHMP that there are no consequences for patients currently included in clinical trials using student. Um, this is a staggering admission uh, uh, that's being made in the EMA that they feel as if the benefits are not outweighed by the risks. The last thing I'd say here about this topic is, you know, to me, I think it actually does reveal one of the irregularities in the positions espoused by the US FDA. Now, the FDA always makes a great point to say, we do not regulate the practice of medicine, and indeed, they do not, and nor would you want them to regulate how we practice medicine. Their job is merely to allow to market drugs that have a favorable safety and effectiveness profile. Um, in this case, sunitinib is already on the market for metastatic RCC, and as any an oncologist will tell you, there is the ability for oncologists to use this off-label. Um, they can prescribe it off-label. Uh, they don't need a formal FDA approval to give sunitinib for this setting, although it would clearly have some advantages for insurance coverage, et cetera, et cetera. So if the FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine, which they do not, and this drug is already available, then one would imagine that on the margin, with data that are rather unflattering, the FDA would decline to approve preferentially rather than approve. In the same way the FDA would argue that we're approving a marginal drug, but you don't necessarily have to use it and we don't regulate the practice of medicine, in cases where a marginal drug is already approved, we don't have to sanction it for another use. You can use it for that other use. We don't regulate the practice of medicine. If you want to say we don't regulate the practice of medicine is an excuse for not um, limiting your access to a novel marginal product, perhaps that should also cut with endorsing a novel marginal subsequent indication. Just saying. Well, that's it. Those are just some scattered thoughts about adjuvant, sunitinib, and RCC. Not a good approval. Um, Europe got it right. US got it wrong. We are putting the cart in front of the horse when we accept surrogates, when we've measured what we actually care about, and that is no better or worse. But the surrogate goes the direction you wanted. Okay, so this is really 
backwards. We're getting it backwards in oncology. Well, on that upbeat note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. John Mandrola. Stay tuned. Here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. John Mandrola. John Mandrola is a writer for Medscape. He's uh, a practicing electrophysiologist and cardiologist at, uh, at, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Dr. Mandrola did his medical school at the University of Connecticut. Uh, he did his residency, his cardiology fellowship, his EP fellowship, all at IU. And now he resides in Kentucky, where he's lived for how many years now, Dr. Mandrola? 22 years. 22 years. Time flies when you're having fun. I know, it seemed like just yesterday. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming here to the plenary session. When I told you you'd be giving the plenary session, is this what you had in mind? <laughs> Not quite, no. <laughs> I'm excited to talk with you. I'm excited to have you here. It's good to see you. It's, I haven't seen you since, uh, since March when I was out there. Um, lis- listeners should know a little bit about you. Um, you were a private practice doctor for many years, and you stayed pretty quiet for a lot of those years. Then recently, uh, you have become a thought leader in cardiology and in electrophysiology. Uh, what happened to you, Dr. John? Uh, why couldn't you just stay quiet? I don't know. I practiced EP in a, in a group here at, starting in 1996, and I just kept my nose to the grindstone and worked hard and uh, did all of this typical EP stuff. And then in about 2009... I just started. I just started writing about mostly first about cycling because I'm an avid cyclist and former bike racer, and then really quickly I found out that most writers do better if they write about stuff they know. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew more about medicine than I did about cycling, so I started writing about medicine, and then started you know with that, that coincided kind of with the internet age and and the online conversation and then I really got more interested in critical appraisal and really was fortunate that the um, heart.org people and Shelley Wood first uh, asked me to write a blog and and then that started getting uh, got some attention and so that's how it all began I see and now I've kind of gotten interested in more academic things and it's really kind of launched uh, my interest in 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 academics and in inquiry I see uh, but before you were writing for the heart.org, um, you had a personal blog that you had been doing some medical topics on? Yeah, so I started with my personal I blog um, for a couple years just writing mm. just writing about things that interest me in cardiology and also in public health. And, and um, uh, that I did that for a couple years. I still update it periodically, um, mm-hmm. but uh, mostly I just write for the heart.org, Medscape, cardiology. I see. And um, and and now I see uh, you're being pulled more and more into the world of academic publishing. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want your listeners to think that I'm a you know big scientist or anything. But I have um, been fortunate to have some collaborations with with other researchers and uh, Andrew Foy at Penn State and Dan Matlock at University of Colorado and and uh, gotten an opportunity to write some editorials with them and. 
it's been it's been exciting. My group um, we're participating in the Decide ICD trial, which is an NIH funded uh, uh, trial on decision aids. So I'm super excited about that. No, that's fantastic. We, yeah, we participated in a randomized controlled trial uh, looking at his bundle pacing here as well. So, I see. Yeah. No results yeah, from that yet, though. Are there? No, no. Um, uh, um, I think I, I I can't say when, but I think um, uh, soon you'll be seeing some at least at least early pilot studies on uh, RCTs and his bundle pacing. Oh, I see. Well, I look forward to to seeing that. Uh, it'll be great to have have the data there, as as you well know. Um, I think it's interesting that you've moved from social media to academic publishing, where you get the benefit of a very long production process and very few readers. You're winning on both sides there. Oh, you can't! Be- I couldn't <laughs> believe it when I did it. So, so I'm so used to just I, you know, writing is passionate, right? Uh-huh. So you get on a computer and you get fired up about something, uh-huh. and you and you fire off this like thing, like Hitchens used to write in an hour or two. You'd fire off just from the heart. And you want to hit publish, and then if it's if it's on your blog or um, if it's social media, you yeah. can just go with it. Uh-huh. But if it's academic publishing, I was stunned at how hard it is to get something <laughs> through. Yeah, uh, uh, not just peer review, but like editorial review. It's editorial crazy. review, the process. I know. I I still have some manuscripts that we submitted over a year ago. We're still waiting to see the light of day. I've Do forgotten you know, I, about I, them. I tell people. <laughs> That just, you know, it took me, I think, a whole weekend of my life to, to start with EndNote. And then I've spent other weekends just getting through the uh, submitting process of some journals. But, um, yeah, yeah. So hopefully I'll, I'll live long enough to see that uh, that get streamlined a little bit. Oh, yes. I, ho- I hope so, too. Well, don't get me started on submitting those articles. That's quite an ordeal. <laughs> quite an ordeal. Now, what I brought you here to talk about is to talk about some of our mutual interest, which is, has to do, I think, with the use, the appropriate use, but also the increasing misuse of medical technologies and practices. Um, but I wanted to start by asking you something that I've heard you say, uh, say on social media, or perhaps it was in one of your blogs. Um, you told, you said somewhere that you hope to see the world, you're increasingly trying to see the world with open eyes. Uh, what do you mean by that when you talk about medical practice, medical evidence? Yeah, so the the eyes open is just for it. It goes back to my ten years of practice, where I just came out of training, and I just for sure thought I had the right answers, and we did all these things, and we were sure that we were doing right. And then, as you gather experience and you start to see how things change you realize that, okay, what you were sold maybe isn't, mm-hmm. maybe isn't all that. And, um, you know, then you start going to these medical meetings and you start seeing that some of the spin and spin in journals. And then I just want people to keep their eyes open and, you know, look for the hidden stitch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are the, what's, what's behind these conclusions and um, I guess I've just grown to be more of a slow adopter and, 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 and more skeptical, not cynical, just skeptical of things that maybe when I was younger, I was more apt to accept so mm-hmm. quickly. And I think, um, would you say that part of that, um, I think, critical appraisal and skepticism comes from the fact that um, so often, so much of the force behind the promotion of a new result or a new study um, 
is a entity, perhaps a company or perhaps another entity, uh, that stands to benefit often tremendously financially from one interpretation of that study versus another? Oh, it's no doubt. It's no doubt. Look, we have to have collaboration with industry. I mean, you can't ablate arrhythmias without ablation catheters and mapping systems. Mm -hmm. You need all this stuff. But my gosh, I'm just so struck by these these just um, uh, competing interests. I I saw it at the ESC meeting a, a couple weeks ago, this researcher had instead of conflict of interest he had duality of interest on his slide and i just thought you know there's that was such a good phrase duality meaning yes we're interested in helping patients but also we're interested in profits and we're interested in this line of research and i just feel like some of these conflicts are just so systemic they're just they go from the beginning of your training and it's I don't think it's sinister. It's just there. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess eyes open means just beware of of these dualities of interest. Yeah. And I think you and I agree a great deal on this topic, which is that, um, you know, we're not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There can be healthy collaboration. There ought to be healthy collaboration. Uh, there ought even to be probably a profit motive in this space, because without that, you probably would not have as many um, innovative products coming to market. But at the same time, you want some part of the process to have some impartiality, some objective, skeptical look at the data, somebody who may be one step removed from, you know, having personally received payments from the manufacturer to be able to lend their voice to whether or not these data are really practice changing. Um, and so, so what you're, you're saying is that go ahead, you know, work with the industry, but let's also have some opportunity for impartial people to look at this data. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I really do think that I really do think that if you have a good result, if you really got something that's beneficial, that crosses that high bar mm-hmm. of a genuine improvement, it's going to be obvious to everybody. Right. It's not going to be something that requires spin. Right. And I'm just, you know, being a being a medical conservative, Andrew Foy and I are working on this whole. We're working on a piece about medical conservatism, and it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we're against the profit motive, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that. It just means that it means you have to have a high bar to to improve to really make a genuine improvement. And and you talk about it on your on your uh, on your podcast and in your blogs. Well, about thank you for listening these, to. These shot. tiny mm-hmm. incremental improvements in, uh, you know, cancer chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, if a if a person, if a patient, it was really an unbiased observer, and they had that real information, mm-hmm. would they sign up for that? Right. And and or would a doctor in practice like me in my first ten years would would you know would we would we accept this as a real genuine improvement if we had the absolute risk reductions and 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 true trade-offs right and that's all i'm asking and that's all i i push for right i i think you put that very well i wanted to ask you about about this other topic that comes up a lot um there clearly is some underuse in the united states healthcare system um I think a lot of that underuse is driven by the fact that we don't provide access still to this day, despite the Affordable Care Act, there are still access issues on the fringes there. Um, There's still some difficulty in getting everyone universal access. We're not at 100% yet. Um, 
We also have this other, this other force in U.S. medicine of overuse. That's something that as doctors we, we perhaps maybe see a little bit more of because we see those sorts of um, kind of cases, situations where when you hear about what was done, you kind of raise an eyebrow and you wonder, boy, did that really make a lot of sense to, to do this uh, in this situation? Um, I wonder how you feel about these two reconciling forces, this overuse, underuse. Uh, is one a bigger problem than the other? Uh, is one merely more visible? How do you think about it? Well, I think, I really think it's an American blemish. It's just an awful thing that we have our uh, healthcare system the way it is. Yes, if you're sick and you're dying, this is a great system. If you get into a car crash in my city, you have a level one trauma center which can take care of you. But for for most things, there's such inequity of access to care and it's it's just it's just terrible. So I do think that we see more, I see more overuse, but I also do an outreach clinic once a month where I take care of people uh, without much um, uh, without much access to health care. Mm-hmm. And it's just so striking that on that Saturday, we're just trying to help people get a basic, basic medical care. Mm-hmm. But on Friday, you know, the day before, we're seeing all of these people through uh, really trying to avoid overuse. And overuse is a bigger problem in, in you know, most American urban areas. Mm-hmm. And medicalization of, of normal things and expansion of, expansion of, of uh, disease to normal people's excess screening, excess testing, all of that overuse, I think, exacerbates the problem of underuse and poor access. Mm-hmm. And um, my feeling from, I'm not a health policy guy, I don't think I have much say in health policy, but as a, as a you know, voice of clinicians, I, I think that if we do our part and try and avoid sort of these low value, flat of the curve practices, then we, we can help um, uh, reduce overuse or at least the culture of overuse Mm -hmm. and if we can change that culture then maybe underuse gets better i see and you alluded to this um uh, i think and and maybe i'll I'll have you kind of spell it out a little bit more um but overuse in your mind exists not only on the spectrum of people with multiple medical problems often perhaps taking many medications with perhaps several implanted devices undergoing a battery of procedures uh, people who may think of themselves as chronically ill but also on the spectrum of the well uh, the many interventions we subject healthy people to with the promise or perhaps the 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 idea that this will preserve your health for more and more years, will keep you living longer and living better. Um, but on both ends of this spectrum, overuse may exist and has to do with practices that simply, on the face of it, on the merits, do not accomplish what we think they might. Both are terrible, and you're absolutely right to highlight both. So uh, it just takes screening. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just shocking to me that um, we we have so little evidence mm-hmm. that screening of anything improves overall mortality mm-hmm. and yet it, it we've we've gotten people to believe that that um, uh, screening is a good thing and I think again if it got to the unbiased consumer if they were actually having to make a decision and they found out that many of these screening tests don't change overall mortality mm-hmm. I think we would start to change that culture but it's also overuse is is just as bad 
in older people because then you know when you're when you're overusing testing and overusing surgeries and procedures in older people you're doing you're going against really the main rule of medicine which is mm -hmm. to first do no harm mm -hmm. and when i see older people in the office i i look at them with awe and i say okay how can i prevent harming you what mm -hmm. can i do that's least likely to harm you and not mess you up but yet you know we have this bias that doing more and, and action is better than inaction, mm -hmm. but I think it's misplaced in many cases. I see. That's, I think that's very well put. And I guess I would also um, point out that, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to try to articulate what you, you said so nicely, which is that um, you feel as if, if, uh, if people had a more honest and accurate uh, view of what was known and not known, what the potential benefits and uncertainties were for something like screening. They may choose differently. And then the other thing I want to kind of push you on is this idea of, um, do you think that the average person understands one of the things that I think you and I are kind of taking for granted as the backdrop of this conversation, which is that there have been so many medical practices um, in our careers that were heralded as this is going to be wonderful this is really going to change things but we learned that actually it didn't do those things even though it was really promising um, and the lesson that you and i kind of have in the bottom of our hearts or perhaps the back of our mind is that you know biology is difficult it really is difficult to improve upon uh someone's functioning and make them better off and when you combine the fact that you know th this is not easy to be successful in medicine with the fact of there is great uncertainty, the conclusion we come to is a lot of these unproven things, um, not just that we just don't know if they work, but they probably really, honestly, they probably don't. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I, it, it seems kind of hokey to, to use the analogy of a, a cyclocross bike race in mud, but, you know, one of the rules in cyclocross is that, you know, if you try to go too fast, mm -hmm then you'll make errors and those errors will actually cause you to fall down, bust your bike and you end up making less progress and going slower. And so, you go slower, right. Okay, that's, exactly. a, that's a perfect I'm analogy, like, right. I'm kind of like in science yeah. and in medicine, if, if we just um, embrace this uncertainty a little bit and, and, and um, I sort of just try to make fewer errors, I think we might actually, it, it, it actually would be, it would be a nice change from where we are from where we are now, and as far as the, as far as communication with patients, I look. I don't. I'm a. I'm a huge advocate for shared decision making, but that doesn't mean just giving patients a bunch of statistics and letting them choose mm -hmm. off of a menu. I mean, we're we're sort of the experts in in medical problems, and they're the experts in what's important to them. But if we gather that from them, and present this in a way. Uh, that's that's fair and balanced and unbiased say you know with some of these decision aids for instance then I think we'll get to a place that is you know some patients may want to be more aggressive mm -hmm. what's important to them is to maximize every possible mm -hmm. day that they can live but other people have other goals and I just think that we just need to do a better job communicating the uncertainty because people will be able to make better decisions for them now John what I I've, I've... I've long wondered this about you, which I think you do so marvelously, is you, you talk about these issues that um, listeners will know I talk about as well. Um, but um, you also do it in a way 
that people who di- fundamentally may disagree with you, um, they really like you, John. And uh, <laughs> and and uh, I want to know how you how you doing it. How do you get them to like you so much? Because uh, sometimes I, I believe I get under their skin. So what what is yeah. your secret? What is your secret? What can I do better? I don't. Know. I don't. I, I'm. I'm gonna uh, push back a little on you on that. Um, on that. On that contention. I think. I think some of them. Um, uh, I have found. Maybe I'm not so sure how much they. How much they like me. But oh, I see. <laughs> when the when they I when the know. truth comes I, out. Huh? I, I try and see. I try and see a debate. Um. You know from from the other person's viewpoint and I've been in medicine 22 years and okay so there are some there are some outliers of pretty egregious behavior mm-hmm. but gosh the overwhelming majority of doctors and people and nurses and people who go into this and and see patients at the bedside really want to do the right thing mm-hmm. and it, it comes from this I really do believe that that people are doing what they do and advocating what they advocate for because of a sort of beneficent intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, intent. I mean, it's really well-meaning. The problem is, is that I I just think that it the, the bias towards doing more and accepting accepting you know shaky evidence is just it's too strong. Mm-hmm. And I don't. It's not personal when I go and criticize someone's study. Right. Um, I'm not critically, you know, I'm not criticizing them. Right. I'm just saying, okay, let's say this didn't work out. You don't have to spin it. I right. mean, we've learned something from it. Right. Um, and, and the more I do research, the more I realize actually how hard it is to generate this, this kind of information. It's super hard work and I don't mean to personally attack anybody. Right. It's just, I think we can argue with people's ideas rather than arguing with them as people. And that's really well put. And, you know, I do think you, you kind of alluded to this, that we have a certain kind of schizophrenia on this topic. On the one hand, we all know as scientists that this isn't easy. Many things we're going to try are not going to work. Um, science is hard. We're in it for the long run. It may take a long time before we make progress on some of these very complex diseases. On the other hand, we want every trial to be a success. And if it's not successful, we often spin the results or talk about the one uh, silver lining that's maybe not pre-specified, some post-hoc analysis. Um, but that's a bit of a schizophrenia because we know that, you know, this isn't a, a, this isn't a field where we should be having so much success. And and this is a point that I think John Yonides puts so well. They look at p-values and abstracts and, you know, 95% are significant. He says, uh, you know, you shouldn't be finding so many significant results. Uh, this is telling us that this is a, there's a massive selective reporting going on here. Yeah, I agree. I think that if you if you do research and you take the time and effort to do a blinded controlled mm-hmm. trial uh, looking to show a benefit of a certain treatment and you end up not being able to show that, I mean, that's just as worthy to me knowing that as whether that thing was successful or not because mm-hmm. it's just it's just really important to know what doesn't work or what works less as what works great. And I think it's really sad that we've has this have this incentive system in science where only positive trials are are lauded. I mean it should be it should be the trial itself, the science itself right. should be celebrated. I mean look at ESC just a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. we had two trials looking at uh, aspirin for primary prevention and right. pretty much it was a wash. Right. I mean well that's 
I mean, millions of people are taking aspirin because they think it delivers health and right. prevention benefits, right. and the fact that it was marginal to none, uh, that's kind of really important to know, so good on the people who did that. Right. Uh, absolutely, and that's just a great example of something that, you know, simply because it's negative doesn't mean uh, it's unimportant. It's often vitally important, uh, particularly for progress moving forward and, and, uh, and, 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 and going back to the drawing board in certain cases and coming up with some better ideas. Can I ask you a quick question? Oh, boy. That's not permitted on this podcast. No, go ahead. No, no. speaking of evidence, I want to get your take about, um, and speaking of spin, tell us, I mean, one of the things that I'm most concerned about in cardiology today is observational research and, mm-hmm. and, and how it can lead us astray. I mean, this is really a problem for us yeah. in, in cardiology because we just, we just make these causal jumps with observational data. Well, um, you know, I'm, you're going to have me uh, be very sympathetic with that view. Um, you know, I guess I want to kind of point out there's a bit of a nuance here. Like, you know, you and I both agree that observational data is often incredibly valuable. Uh, it can tell us a lot about prognosis, about natural history. Um, it can tell us about high-risk subgroups. It can perhaps give us some ideas on how to design and conduct research. I think the one thing it does very poorly is serve as the justification for the primary evidence of efficacy of a novel device or drug or therapy. And one of the biggest reasons it does that poorly is confounding by indication, which essentially is this bias that all of us physicians have, all physicians have, which is we do not deploy our therapies um, indiscriminately. We use our judgment. And if you have a therapy you believe works, but you don't have proof it works, and you want to use it judiciously, you will pick people in whom you think it will benefit. And, and that leads to a whole bunch of things. You may subconsciously or consciously exclude patients who are severely ill with multiple comorbidities, people who simply don't pass the sort of eyeball test, um, all sorts of things that you might do in, in terms of picking who you deploy the therapy on. Then later, if you go back and say, wow, did people I, I did this therapy in do better than people who I didn't do it in? You might find, yeah, they do better. But it's difficult to separate the value of the therapy from all of those biases that went into the selection. And that is the, that is the thing that separates randomized data from observational data. What about those researchers? What about the people who say, "Oh, don't worry, don't don't worry. We 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 controlled for all those I know. Uh, variables." I well, mean, what do you say? To them? I guess I'd say that. Um, well, I, I'll tell you what. The more they do the research, they 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 stop saying that because I think many of us know when you look at administrative data sets like CMS, the quality of the variables you're getting um, is very limited. I mean, there are lots of information you simply don't know. And I'll tell you also, if you start to do EHR. Um, date analysis, you go in your own medical record and try to piece together some things, you're going to find there's lots that are missing. There's lots of stuff that's not really being documented. And um, uh, the one thing that unites all of the observational studies that were failed to be supported by subsequent randomized trials um, and all of the new ones uh, that people believe um, could never be tested in RCT uh, is an unyielding faith of the author that they've adjusted for all the covariates. Um, People thought that once upon a time with Nurses Health Study, they've adjusted for the covariates. Uh, They did no such, I mean, they, they clearly were things they didn't adjust for. And, you know, there are people like Miguel Hernan, the epidemiologist at Harvard, who have proposed novel methods on how to do observational data better. And 
we have a commentary right now in Lancet where we try to provide some novel methods. And I'm not saying that, you know, there'll never be a day when we can use this reliably. But I will say that in 2018, based on the average observational study that, that leads a doctor to say you ought to do X, Y, and Z, I, I think we're just not there yet. And, and I would have tremendous pause. I just add a couple more things. If you wanted to assess a new medical practice, um, the most efficient way to do that is to do a clinical trial. You actually expose probably the fewest number of patients to the practice um, until you get the answer. Uh, to, to deploy it in a large-scale national way and then look years later at, at observational data, that's actually an inefficient way to answer some clinical questions. Um, it'll cost society a lot more and it'll cost patients a lot more in, case, in the cases it doesn't work. Um, but I want to turn the table back to you. All right. Well, actually, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is, is that in cardiology, we accept many of these practices without randomized controlled trial yep. data, and then we do the RCTs very late in the process after the practice is established. And as you know, it's very hard to, to undo uh, uh, practices that have been established. Um, left atrial appendage occlusion is one, for instance, right. and and there are many others that we're doing and and now acquiring more important data that that might reverse something that's that really we should have never exposed patients to to begin with. Yeah, and I think you you hit the nail on the head. There's something about the psychology of if you've been doing it for many years, you were rewarded for doing it, a little bit financial reward, but also the psychological reward of actually feeling like you helped your patients. You, you combine those two things, and I think you have a very highly addictive substance for doctors, uh, and doctors become addicted to doing it. And then breaking that addiction is very difficult, and, and it's often data doesn't just doesn't do it. Correct. I mean, I... I just in debates, in debates, I've actually had that used as evidence that, oh, this is fine. We've used it for, we've used this for 10 years. So obviously it's fine. But of course, using something for 10 years doesn't uh, equate to evidence. <laughs> right, and, of course. Yeah. I mean, the medical conservative believes, I think that, you know, we would, we, one of the things that we could do to improve, uh, you know, these medical reversals that you've written about is that we could uh, incorporate things uh, or get reimbursement with with uh, with evidence. Have mm -hmm. more evidence before um, you know before things are accepted. Right. The, the 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 example I like to 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 cite is the stroke extracting devices. You know the Dutch right. government or or maybe not the Dutch government. One of the northern European countries um, specified that you can have this device if. And, and we'll pay for it if you randomize patients. Mm -hmm. And they were able to randomize a large number of patients and, and uh, it ended up being beneficial. But uh, again, I think we could do better with evidence um, generation before acceptance. And I think that's well put. And we have some methods in place like CMS coverage with evidence development that could serve as an outlet to do just that. But I wanted to shift gears and ask you something a little bit different. This is a paper that caught both your eye and my eye, and we ended up working on a, a little response. Um, because we felt like they think that the, the popular interpretation of the paper was a bit problematic and might even do some harm. Uh, this is the paper I'm talking about that appeared in Science. Uh, and it looked at predicting death near the end of life. The authors found that using covariates in the Medicare data set, that they had a difficult time in predicting people in whom death was imminent from people 
in whom they would live past a certain period of time. Um, and they used that to, uh, and they interpreted that to mean that all of this care that we're performing um, in people with complex medical problems is not wasteful. It's all necessary and it all should be continued uh, because we can't predict who will die. Um, and you and I, you know, we thought that was kind of problematic, but I'm wondering if you could, you know, tell the listeners, why did that catch your attention? Why do you think that was something worth discussing more? Yeah, I think, I, I think, I, if I can remember right, I'm pretty sure the researchers were careful in, in, in their conclusions mm-hmm. of that paper, and it was more the uh, clinical translation right. on, on social media was, I think, what I took from that paper was that there was a great uncertainty in predicting who will live and who will die. But because there's uncertainty of that, you can't say, oh, you know, we can't be certain, so all of the care we're doing isn't wasteful. And I think that's a leap that you just shouldn't make. Right. It's fair, it's fair to say, yes, we don't know we don't know who will live and who will die at the end of one year, but that does not mean in my mind that some of the things that we're doing to people are um, are wasteful and based purely in eminence, not not evidence. Right, and I think that's, um, you know, you're really hitting this, this nail on the head, I think, with this issue, which is that um, it, it taking a close look at that paper and clarifying exactly what was shown and what was un, not shown uh, is really important. And on social media, I, I think, you know, you and I both saw um, people just ran away with, I think, the wrong conclusion, which was that, well, we don't do anything wasteful at all near the end of life. And, and that simply uh, is almost certainly not the case. We do many things that are uncertain, unproven, Hail Mary kind of interventions um, that likely do a great deal of harm, but it's absolutely unclear if they do any good. Yeah, it seems to me that this would be a good, a, a, a fruitful area to do research. I mean, if you think if you think all these things that we're doing is ben- are beneficial, then then I mean, we should do trials to assess what the actual benefit are or what the benefit is going to be, and th- then we would know. But you know, some of it doesn't even pass the common sense test. Right. I mean, if you've practiced medicine and you just round on people. And, 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 and you look and you just try and picture what this person was like before they had this catastrophic illness. I mean, if they're, for instance, you know, Stacy, my wife is a hospice and palliative medicine specialist. So she teaches me all the time that if someone was frail and just getting around their house before they received chemotherapy or had sepsis or had this, you know, broken hip, you're not going to expect them to get, you know, to get less frail from this. And just to try and picture what these people are like before they uh, get into these really severe uh, situations in ICUs. Um, again, we, 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 we just need to look at the whole patient mm-hmm. and, and, and think about their situation. And I think you put that well. I mean, we, we've talked a great deal in this conversation about evidence for doing things, uh, but we can't forget, and you know, I, I'm often reminded of it when I round, um, that there are many things that don't pass the common sense test. They don't pass the basic logic test. Um, forget evidence. This doesn't even, you know, why are you doing this? What's even your, what's in the back of your mind? What's the reasoning? Uh, and, and, and people choke in many cases. They feel like, well, I have to be doing something. But it doesn't even make that much sense when it's articulated. Well, the other thing along those lines is that um, we, we, we do, I think, incorrectly stretch the evidence and we we you know it really can't 
trans much of the at least much of the cardiology literature I think you've written about this in cancer is we really enroll ideal patients in our trials and so the ICD trials for instance enroll 60 to 70 year old people with pretty much isolated heart disease well how does that really translate to an 80 or 85 year old with multiple medical conditions right. and I think that when we when we see these older patients we shouldn't discriminate on the basis of their age but we should also be humble about how the evidence generated in younger healthier people translates to them right and I think that's that's put so well um, let me ask you one last question because I know our, uh, well, listeners don't know, but we wasted about 30 minutes trying to get this, uh, <laughs> this communication set up to work. And that's why we both started this conversation on a hostile tone and we were quite upset. <laughs> no, uh, but, uh, it was frustrating. It was quite frustrating. I hate computers. I, 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 I hate them. I hate them totally. Um, and I hate the, uh, the EMRs are just a disaster. I mean, gosh, boy, w w can they make a good one, please? Um, but what I wanted to ask you was this. When, how do you approach reading an article in the literature? Um, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're a trainee, a medical student, a resident, and, and they pick up the latest issue of Circulation or New England Journal, and they see an article that kind of catches their eye, um, and you were there to tell them, look, this is how you should approach reading this, what would you tell them? Yeah, somebody asked me that. Um, uh, it, was a, it was a learner, and she said, how do you – how do you do this? And I said, well, you know, it, it doesn't, it's a process. It takes many years to, to, to figure out, you know, how, how to do this. I say, okay, first start with a question. What is the question that the researchers are trying to answer and, and what's the background? Mm -hmm. And then I think the most important section is really the methods. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the methods. How did they go about doing this? Is it observational? Is it controlled? You know, how did, what's the primary endpoint? Because this is another problem when you're looking at articles is, is it a surrogate endpoint? Is it, you know, a surrogate endpoint is, did it change some lab value or did it actually improve mortality or reduce stroke or mm -hmm. um, just, so look at the endpoint. And then when you look at the results, I, you know, I began doing this by just looking, without even looking at the p-value or the statistics, just how much is the difference? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it really... Is the difference 0.5%? Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, that might be significant if you have 20,000 patients in the trial, but is it a big difference? Right. And then once you look at the actual differences, I think you can look at the confidence intervals. And one of the mistakes that people make is they see a point estimate of like 0.7, it has a ratio of 0.7. I say, okay, it's a 30% reduction, but what does the confidence interval go to? Right. Maybe it's you know, maybe it's a huge reduction, maybe it's not much reduction. And then finally, I think the most important thing about reading these papers is, did the conclusions of the authors, did it, you know, was it a fair conclusion based on the results? And, you know, you see cardiology papers and sometimes instead of saying that the primary endpoint was no difference, they'll say there was a difference in the secondary endpoint, so it was a right. positive trial. Right. And so... Do the conclusions come together with the research? And those are my those are my basics. I see, and I uh, I couldn't agree more. I think you really it's very similar to some of the things that I advise uh, students when they ask me how to approach a paper. Well, Dr. John Mandrola, I wanted to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to come to the plenary session stage uh, and talk to our listeners who. All three of them are grateful that you came on. Uh, <laughs> they're grateful that you came here. But um, you know, and I also wanted to. To, to say 
um, why it is that I, I, I really do like your work so much. Um, and I think it's because um, you strive, and I can tell you go to great pains to do this. And I had a chance to work with you once, so I know you do. Um, you really put a lot of work into making something easy to read and understand. And I think people don't realize that that is an incredible skill. That's perhaps one of the greatest skills um, that that exists in all of medicine, I think, or in all of any field. Um, when you take somebody who can take a complex topic and take their time to make it digestible and simple and understandable, but also important and clear and make good points, um, I think you have a really tremendous skill at that. And I think that's why, um, you know, your articles are so popular and that's why I'm such a big fan. Um, I'm reminded, and I mentioned this quote on this podcast before, this Hemingway quote, long periods of thinking, short periods of writing. Um, and I think that's that's the secret to really good writing. And, you know, too often academics are self-indulgent. We think people want to listen to our, you know, long, verbose, complicated, uh, jargony, um, you know, writing. Uh, but the reality is even people in your field don't like reading that. We like to read things that have been streamlined and, and made as simple as possible, but no simpler, to, to take another quote. Uh, and I think you do such a marvelous job of that. And so, you know, thank you so much for coming on here uh, on the plenary session. I hope to have you back in the future, um, despite our technical difficulties. Uh, would you ever consider coming back? Absolutely. I thank you. And hey, I'm honored to talk to you. And you have been a great mentor to me. I've learned a lot from you. And I really want your listeners to know that I think you're, you're, you're in Adam's book on medical reversals is one of the most important books written in medicine oh, in the last gosh. decade or so. Oh, thank you so much, John. And uh, listeners should know that I, I did pay you to say that. So I, th <laughs> I thank you so much for, for that kind word. No but disclosures. No, just no, no financial conflicts of interest. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. John Mandrola. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, it means a lot. Um, follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session um, or send us an email at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, um, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, Plenary Session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. 